Good morning. Today's scripture is from Luke 22, verses 54 through 71. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, looking closely at him, and said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly, this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know who you are talking about. And immediately, while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophecy, who is this that struck you? And they said many things against him, blaspheming him. When the day came, the assemble of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to the council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then he said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ. So who is Jesus? Is Jesus who he claims to be? And if he is who he claims to be, how will we respond to Jesus? These are the kinds of questions that we have asked earlier in the book of Luke, really questions that uh, Luke, as a gospel writer, has pushed us to ask ourselves earlier on in his gospel account, questions of identity, who, will, who is Jesus, who is this man, and questions of response, how do we see people responding to him, and how will we respond to him, and how do our responses to Jesus show us who we are. Well, those questions are still very much on the table as Luke's account draws closer to the cross. In today's text, uh, we see two interrogations, I'll call them. There's the mild, almost seemingly curious uh, questioning aimed at Peter by some people around a campfire, and then 
the mocking and disingenuous questions aimed at Christ by those who are simply looking for a reason to do him harm. So it is an interesting attempt by the enemies of Christ to turn the tables, to confront Jesus and perhaps one of his followers with the same questions that have been the main theme of his ministry so far. Who is Jesus? Is he the Christ? Is he the Son of God? And they're not asking because they want to know. They're fishing for a reason to have Jesus killed. They've already decided how they will respond to Jesus. Luke brings this out in his account of these events, and Jesus himself brings it out in the way he responds to their questions. By their answers, they give their answer, and in an ironic way, they provide the correct answer. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We first need to talk about Peter. We talked a little bit about this denial already as we saw Christ in the passage known as the last discourse uh, foretell uh, this denial. Some things I said already, uh, we saw how Jesus called Peter to strengthen his brothers, the other disciples, after they had all endured Satan's attacks. Jesus called the man who would deny Jesus, who would fail him in the most dramatic way, who would come to know his weaknesses more intimately than the rest. This is the brother who would then turn and strengthen the rest, not because he was the strongest, but because he was the most intimately acquainted with his own weakness and the need for Christ's strength. Well, we see Peter's weakness on display in this uncomfortable passage where he denies Jesus. There is a dark kind of irony in this passage Luke, as he normally does, uh, uses the name Peter for this disciple, but you may be aware uh, that Peter is not his given name. He was originally called Simon, and Peter started calling him Jesus. Um, no, Jesus started calling him Peter. This is it's terrible getting old, but uh, Peter means rock. You may be aware of that, but as far as we can tell, no one was actually named Peter. Uh, this word Petros for rock wasn't actually used for as a common name before Jesus gave that nickname, we'll call it, to Simon, son of Jonah. It wasn't a pre-existing name that meant rock. It wasn't that Jesus had a book of baby names or disciple names and picked one that said the meaning rock that he was looking for. Uh, to anyone who was around back then, it would have sounded just like he's calling him rock. And interesting little thing about the, the Greek language often uses the article, their equivalent of the word the, in front of a proper name. So it's not uncommon to read the Jesus or the Paul. So if you were to translate today's text in a very wooden, wooden kind of word-for-word -word manner, it might sound it's like it's about the rock, you know, like Dwayne Johnson. They seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and the rock was following at a distance. When they kindled a fire, the middle of the courtyard sat down together, the rock sat down among them. Now, most scholars agree that Luke was unaware of Mr. Johnson or his film career. He shows no awareness of the events of The Mummy Returns or any of the Scorpion King films or uh, even Mr. Johnson's cameo in the sixth season of Star Trek Voyager. Uh, for reasons that are not entirely clear, few modern American actors were well known in the ancient Near East. However, the idea of The Rock as someone 
who is strong and immovable is really not that different. So if you want to read through the text and imagine The Rock, uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, in the role of Simon Peter, it probably gives you a good sense of the irony that Luke is aiming at as, as he continues to, to repeat Peter's name, The Rock. The solid and immovable rock is cowering in fear, essentially, before a servant girl, among others. You know, what, what would have happened if Peter had said yes? You know, what consequences might he have faced? Was the servant girl going to run and, and tell the officer so Peter would also be arrested? Or was she just kind of curious on her part? I don't know for sure, but the fact that all the Gospels specify that this was a servant girl probably means that we're not supposed to see Peter as in any danger or any immediate threat. The stakes are very low. It's not as if someone is coming after him armed with a sword or a club. Peter is in great peril. It doesn't seem to be in great peril. Um, you got the club thing from, from last week? Thank you, thank you. That's, that's good. Uh, so th this guy who boasted that he would stand with Jesus, stand firm like a rock to the very end, even to death, he's been following kind of timidly from a distance, trying to remain incognito. And now, what does he do? The first opportunity he gets, he throws Jesus under the bus. Uh, we'll look at his denials here. If you look at his first denial, I don't seem to have control of the thing. This thing have, does it have a battery? I think this is actually out of battery because it's not making the little light happen either. Oh, no, there it is. Anyway, well, it's in here somewhere. If you look at his first denial, if you, I, I can't, I don't have noted what verse it is, but Trey can flip ahead if you want. But um, the language that he uses when the servant girl asks him, uh, "Do you, are you one of his followers?" is very similar to the words <clears throat> they spoke when they kicked someone out of the out of the synagogue. If someone is excommunicated, so to speak, from the synagogue. They would say, we no longer know you. And Peter says to the servant girl, I do not know him. It's not just a lie. He's not just denying that he knows Jesus. He is disowning Jesus. This is significant. And Peter then, he goes on his second denial. He denies the other disciples, the, the brothers he is supposed to lead and supposed to later on strengthen Someone else comes along and says, you also are one of them, meaning one of the followers of Jesus. Peter says, man, I am not. So he disowned Jesus, and now he denies any association with the ones Jesus calls his brothers, his fellow followers of Christ. And then finally, in his third denial, he really destroys his own credibility, his own dignity in, in a way. The third questioner points out that you are a Galilean, right? Surely you're one of them because you're a Galilean. Presumably they can tell this by maybe Peter's accent or his dress. Uh, Galilee was a different area from where they, they are, and you have ways of identifying if people are uh, where they're from. Uh, Jesus, of course, grew up in Nazareth, which is in Galilee. That's where he called his disciples in, in Galilee. So here we have Peter, a man who is obviously from Galilee, sitting in the court of the high priest in the middle of the night in the very place where Jesus, the Galilean, is being held for questioning. 
which, by the way, is the reason everyone is there in the middle of the night. They're all there because of this Jesus, who's become a household name in the entire region, Galilee and Judea. And we're to believe that Peter has no idea what anyone is talking about or why everyone is there or who this Jesus is. He just happens to be here watching them question Jesus for reasons apparently completely unknown to us. Ah, Peter. He bent himself over backwards, twisted himself into a pretzel. Uh, He sacrificed, threw under the bus his own Lord, his brothers, his own integrity, his credibility, his dignity, all to save his own skin that wasn't even that clearly in jeopardy to begin with. He has completely sold out, easily sold out, and what did he get for it? And in that very moment, the rooster crows, and Jesus turns and looks straight at at Peter. Peter remembers Jesus' words, remembers this denial that Jesus said would come. Jesus warned Peter about this, and Peter still failed. Peter cannot handle the gaze of Christ in that moment. He rushes out of the courtyard. He escapes the questions. He escapes the eyes of his Lord. But he can't escape the guilt. He can't escape the shame. And so he weeps bitter tears. Can't help but think, uh, what, what did Peter see in the eyes of, of Christ? Just the idea of that look. I don't know if it's something that an artist could, could capture, but I, I, I have a feeling it's something that's familiar to all of us. You know, Luke alone tells us about this brief moment of eye contact between the disciple and his master, but he doesn't tell us more than that. But looking back to when Jesus foretold that this moment would happen, he was filled with compassion, wasn't he? I have prayed for you, he tells Peter. He says, when you have turned, not if you turn, but when you turn, strengthen your brothers. So there must be love There must be compassion in Jesus' eyes, and yet this look brings Peter to tears. Again, I think it's a look that we are all familiar with in a manner of speaking, not that we have all wept bitter tears in quite the same outwardly uh, expressive fashion, though some may have, but we have all experienced what the Apostle Paul calls godly grief. In 2 Corinthians, he writes, how a previous letter had grieved the Corinthians, not with a worldly grief that produces death, but a godly grief which produces repentance leading to salvation. When we find that we have strayed into sin, when our actions and, and thoughts and words, we've denied and disowned our Lord, denied our fellow believers, demolished our own integrity, and those moments of realization, it's not the law alone that provokes us to grief, is it? The law by itself, it might only provoke us to greater striving to try to justify ourselves and do better, or it might provoke us to despair the kind of worldly grief that produces death as it did for Judas. But it is the love that shines in the face of our Savior that really moves us to grieve, I think, in those moments. Grieve knowing that These are the eyes of the one who suffered to redeem us from the guilt and shame that we have earned, the sins that we have once again waded into. What did Paul say? It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance and leads us there by way of of godly grief. 
But in that hour of darkness, Peter is just buried in the grief. For Peter, restoration will have to wait until after the death and resurrection of the Lord that he has denied. As we turn now to look at the the next interrogation, the interrogation of Jesus, we will see that there is good news for Peter, as there is good news for you and me as well. We are weak. Christ is strong. We have a substitute that endured trials that we could only fail. By the way, I'm using the word interrogation to describe this whole event because it's all about questions. If you think about it in legal terms, uh, it covers how Jesus is treated while he is in custody first, and then this sort of trial before the Jewish leaders in the council known as the Sanhedrin. That council is conducting something like a legal trial, but they don't really have the authority to carry out the death penalty under under Roman rule. They have to take this before the, the Romans, this particular case. So they're really fishing for reasons to accuse Jesus before Pontius Pilate. But first they take out their aggressions on him, as we see in verse 63. These are the men holding Jesus in custody, which I, I take to be the sort of security force employed by the temple leaders. And they seem to want to have some fun, I, I guess. They blindfold Jesus and they beat him, demanding that he prophesy, asking who it was that hit him, mocking the notion that Jesus is a prophet. But the irony here is that while they're doing this, they are proving that Jesus is a prophet. If you were to turn back to Luke 18, 32, Jesus said that he would be mocked and shamefully treated, that he would be beaten. Everything that's about to happen is exactly as Jesus said it would happen. They are completely ignorant of the fact that they themselves are fulfilling Jesus' prophecy even as they mock him as a prophet and mock the idea that he is a prophet. Another irony here, uh, looking at the next verse, is that they are the ones committing blasphemy. Blasphemy is what the Jewish leaders are trying to pin on Jesus, at least in the context of the Sanhedrin trial even though they they will tell Pilate that it's insurrection because the Romans care about that more than blasphemy. But, you know, he makes himself equal to God. That's sacrilege. That's blasphemy. They're, They're trying to get Jesus to blaspheme God when they question him. They want him to say that he's the Son of God. Uh, Matthew brings this out explicitly in his account where after Jesus and says this quote about the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. The high priest has a meltdown, essentially, tears his clothes and says he's he's uttered blasphemy. You have now heard his blasphemy. But if you consider what's really going on here, I mean, Luke says it. They're the ones that are blaspheming. And Jesus is God. They are mocking Jesus. Therefore, they are mocking God. And that is the blasphemy. And this is, of course, ironic, but it's also profound we see people committing the very sin that they are in that moment laying on Jesus. The Sanhedrin will condemn him for their own sin and unwittingly give us a picture of the truth they never could have imagined in their wildest dreams, that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And the irony It doesn't stop there. It grows deeper as we consider the exchange between Jesus and the council. They ask him, point blank, if you are the Christ, tell us. Jesus answers, 
If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. What's going on here? I think Jesus is not playing their game. See, they don't really want an answer to this question. They've already decided he's not the Christ. If he says he is the Christ, even if he provides a compelling case, a a rational argument, evidence, they're not going to believe him. You know, it sometimes confuses folks about this because Jesus, you know, earlier on he tells his disciples not to go around uh, saying that he is the Christ. Like in Luke 9, after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, he says, don't, don't spread this. It's not that Jesus is some kind of secret Messiah, but he's controlling the timing of his death so that he is offering himself up as a sacrifice in the right moment in God's timing. I also don't think there's some sneaky thing going on where Jesus can't come out and say who he is because we have to believe it by faith or something like that. I think if you actually understand in context the claims that Jesus makes, the things that he says, the miracles that he does, he makes plenty of clear claims to be the Messiah, plenty of clear claims to be God, all while sort of threading this needle of not providing the technical evidence they would need to condemn him before the proper time and his timing. Here before the council, that proper time has come. But again, Jesus is still in control now of both the timing and the circumstances. And so as he is working to fulfill his eternal plan to lay down his life, he is exposing this council's corruption of justice, the fact that the leaders have made up their minds. They, this is not a fair trial. They won't believe no matter what he says now. And yet they won't answer, he says, if, if he were to ask them. They have a strong and stubborn opinion about who Jesus is. They are so convinced of that opinion that they're willing to put him to death based on it. But they're not willing to go on record and state the opinion for themselves. Again, they're simply trying to induce him to testify against himself. And it's just fascinating how Christ himself instead points to the testimony of Scripture This is a point he has made before and will make again in Luke, that it's the scriptures that bear witness to who he is and what he has come to do. This is a reference to Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Jesus says the Son of Man from now on shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. What's interesting here is that if you look in the context of Psalm 110, it's clear that this is a seat of judgment over all the earth. Psalm 110, verse 6, he will execute judgment among the nations. Jesus' words here would be brazen if they weren't true. The council thinks they are judging Jesus, but Jesus is the ultimate judge of the universe from now on. Jesus has always been God, and God is judge over all the earth, but Jesus has also, in his human nature, taken on the form of a servant. I keep returning to Philippians 2, such a helpful summary of this. Jesus humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name, and every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it is by virtue of his death and resurrection that the God-man Christ Jesus takes on this exalted role as the judge over all creation. And so the council just cannot 
win here. If they strike him down, he shall become more powerful than they can possibly imagine, and they will strike him down because it was his plan to humble himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. He is the judge. This is all over their heads, of course. Instead of seeking to understand Christ's message, they sort of sort through this and try to find some words that they can use to confirm what they already believe about him. There's proof of blasphemy charges in here somewhere. He said, Son of Man, which is an Old Testament title, points to Jesus as the fulfillment of passages like Daniel 7, but these Bible teachers have no concern for exploring that reference and go on to ask Jesus whether he is the Son of God. His answer seems strange to us. He says, you say that I am. The commentators agree that this is an affirmative response. It basically is a yes, but it's not quite the full-throated, clear-cut, signed confession that you'd want in a legal proceeding. It's a bit cryptic. Is it kind of like a no-contest plea? It's another way of saying that you know, this is, they've already made up their minds. This is uh, you've already figured out what you want to accuse Jesus of. Uh, so he's saying just go ahead with it. Or maybe Jesus is saying that their actions prove that he is the Son of God. Since the prophets had said this is how the Son of Man, this is how the Messiah would be treated. So commentators see all kinds of different nuances. And there's about as many layers as there are different commentaries written. But one thing I think Jesus is clearly doing here is demonstrating that he is in control of the situation. He doesn't exactly give them the kind of answer they're looking for, but it is his own words that bring the interrogation to a close with the result that he had planned. If the council had been just and fair and impartial, simply looking at the evidence and trying to uphold the law, nothing he said would have condemned him. Nothing here really meets the legal bar to establish blasphemy. By any righteous measure, he has not incriminated, not incriminated himself, and yet he has spoken the words that lead to his condemnation by the council. So he reveals here something about the council, their actions. They are not just and fair. It's what really stands out here when you compare Jesus' answer that's you know, almost cryptic and hard for us to understand, noncommittal it seems, you say that I am, and the council's reaction, like they've found the smoking gun. What further testimony do we need? That settles it. Yeah, we've heard it from his own lips. So Jesus is exposing here that there is an ir irrational hatred of him. And in so doing, I think he exposes the deeper reality, spiritual condition of human sinfulness, humanity's rejection of God that is common to all of us. What we are seeing in this trial is exactly what the gospel writer John described in chapter 3. Jesus said these words, The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. It is a simple refusal to come into the light by people who love the darkness. So what can we say about this dark and, and difficult passage I've been using this framework in the past couple of sermons of Christ as both our example and our substitute and the need for, for both of those things, right? We do see much in Christ's example here that is 
noble and worthy of our imitation, surely. As 1 Peter says, quoted before, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. You see both sides there. Christ suffered for you, substitute, but leaving you an example. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, Peter said. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Think about the same Peter who failed and denied Christ now uh, recounting this to us. Jesus has just been unjustly arrested. He was blindfolded and, and beaten up and mocked, and now he's made to stand before a council of people who clearly don't care about truth or justice. They just want him dead. How would you react? What would you say? I mean, I can't even keep my temper when the traffic light lasts a little too long, right? But how does Jesus respond? He is humble. He stands on Scripture. He certainly does, again, expose the wickedness of his accusers, but without being combative. In Christ, we have the ultimate picture of the attitude Christ and Paul describes in Romans chapter 12. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what we see in Christ. It really comes off its just the virtue of, of his character that exposes the wickedness of the world. And again, not in a way that he stoops to their level or becomes combative or trades insults for insults. Simply standing on scripture and proclaiming the truth. Jesus is our example, and yet what shines even brighter in this passage is that Christ is our substitute. We see that especially as we compare these two interrogations where Peter failed, Christ succeeded. He stood, he faced the interrogation, faced the world's hatred without even a hint of sin. We can, we, can, we should strive to follow his example, but we can't even imagine doing that perfectly, can we? We can't imagine doing what Christ did. He obeyed, kept the law perfectly, followed God's righteousness, even under great duress, perfectly, and suffered the wrath, condemnation in our place. This is good news for Peter and good news for us. Jesus came to stand in our place and take on the guilt and condemnation that we deserve. Though we would deny and disown him, throw our brethren under the bus, twist ourselves into something wretched, even when we gain little or nothing for it, and we do that every day, Jesus is the perfect substitute for his ever-failing followers. We are weak, but he is strong. We trust in his strength. And we should also take note, mentioned earlier, that Jesus is hope not only for his followers, but he came to be the substitute for people who hate him. There are people who hate Jesus now that he came to be substitute for. He stood condemned, remember, for the very blasphemy that was spewed out against him. As 1 John says, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. We remember that this gospel message that is our hope is the hope that we need to proclaim to a world that needs to hear it. 
But lastly, we've seen Christ our example, Christ our substitute. We can't get away from, though, what is overwhelming in this passage is Christ, the revelation of the glory of God in his humility and in his strength and in his suffering, even as these people are trying to destroy him, to break him down, to make him a laughingstock, something small and wretched. Yet we read this, we look at his character, we look at his perfect righteousness, we look at his love, his grace, and his compassion, and what do we see? We see the glory of God displayed, the character of God, his perfect holiness, his perfect righteousness, his grace and compassion all come out in the face of Christ. What we see is the glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and glorify you that we have such a Savior. A Savior who is our substitute, who did what we could not, who suffered in our place for us, so that weak sinners who have denied you and vile enemies of God who have hated you can come and stand in your presence transformed by the love of Christ. Not because of anything that we have done or could ever do, but only on the basis of what Christ has done for us. Not what you do in us or through us, but what you have done for us. Our only hope and prayer that we plead to you is the perfect righteousness of Christ. We repent of our sins and we repent of any attempt to earn your favor, an insult to the cross of Christ. Cast a look on us, help us to turn from our dead works, to trust in Christ. And we also thank you, Father, and praise you that you sent your Son who is our perfect substitute and our perfect example. As we live in a world that it seems has gone mad, a world that went mad from the very beginning since we took the fruit, we are often tempted to revert to those ways in, in which we by nature had already walked following the, the world's patterns or compromising like Peter chickening out or with the world uh, trading insults. Help us to see the, the beauty and the power, the strength in the way of Christ. It is un, unfathomable to us how he loves his enemies, he corrects his followers, he exposes the wickedness in the world, and yet he is not combative. He simply stands on, on scripture, he entrusts himself to you, 
help us to live as followers of Christ, following his example. And above all, we thank you and praise you for the way that you have revealed your glory in the face of Christ. We rejected, we suppressed the truth and righteousness as your word says. We did not want to worship you as you deserved. And yet, to redeem us from this way of thinking, this way of life, this way of death, you sent your son, perfect revelation of your glory, showing us in the cross where justice and love, holiness and grace, where wrath and mercy meet together in this way that is simply beyond our understanding. We thank you that you have shown us your glory in the face of Jesus Christ and ask that you would kindle in our hearts a greater love and greater awe and greater wonder for this gospel and that we might by it be transformed and that you would glorify your name through us as well. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can stand with me.